Part 4 of History of the Thirty Years' War, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by S.S. Kim, Seoul, South Korea. History of the Thirty Years' War, Volume 4, by Friedrich Schiller, Part 4. While the duke, in his retirement in Egra, was energetically pushing his negotiations with the enemy, concerting the stars, and indulging in new hopes, the dagger which was to put an end to his existence was unsheathed almost under his very eyes. The imperial decree which proclaimed him an outlaw had not failed of its effect and an avenging nemesis ordained that the ungrateful should fall beneath the blow of the ingratitude. Among his officers, Wallenstein had particularly distinguished one Leslie, an Irishman, and had made his fortune. Note, Schiller is mistaken as to this point. Leslie was a Scotchman, and Butler an Irishman and a Papist. He died a general in the emperor's service, and founded at Prague a convent of Irish Franciscan, which still exists. End of note. This was the man who now felt himself called on to execute the sentence against him, and to earn the price of blood. No sooner had he reached Agra in the suite of the duke, than he disclosed to the commandant of the town, Colonel Butler, and to Lieutenant Colonel Gordon, two Protestant Scotchmen, the treasonable design of the duke, which the latter had imprudently enough communicated to him during the journey. In these two individuals, he had found men capable of a determined resolution. They were now called on to choose between treason and duty, between their legitimate sovereign and a fugitive abandoned rebel. And though the latter was their common benefactor, the choice could not remain for a moment doubtful. They were solemnly pledged to the allegiance of the emperor, and this duty required them to take the most rapid measures against the public enemy. The opportunity was favorable. His evil genius seemed to have delivered him into the hands of the vengeance. But not to encroach on the province of justice, they resolved to deliver up their victim alive, and they parted with the bold resolve to take their general prisoner. The dark plot was buried in the deepest silence, and Wallenstein, far from suspecting his impending ruin, flattered himself that in the garrison of Egra he possessed his bravest and most faithful champions. At this time, he became acquainted with the imperial proclamation containing his sentence, and which had been published in all the camps. He now became aware of the full extent of the danger which encompassed him, and the utter impossibility of retracing his steps. His fearfully forlorn condition, and the absolute necessity of at once trusting himself to the faith and honor of the emperor's enemies, to Leslie he poured forth all the anguish of his wounded spirit, and the vehemence of his agitation extracted from him his last remaining secret. He disclosed to this officer his intention to deliver up Egra and Ellenbogen, the passes of the kingdom, to the palatine of Birkenfeld, and at the same time 
informed him of the near approach of Duke Bernard, of whose arrival he hoped to receive tidings that very night. These disclosures, which Leslie immediately communicated to the conspirators, made them change their original plan. The urgency of the danger admitted not of half-measures. Igra might in a moment be in the enemy's hand, and a sudden revolution set their prisoner at liberty. To anticipate this mischance, they resolved to assassinate him and his associate the following night. In order to execute this design with less noise, it was arranged that the fearful deed should be perpetrated at an entertainment which Colonel Butler should give in the castle of Igra. All the guests except Wallenstein made their appearance, who being in too great anxiety of mind to enjoy company, excused himself. With regard to him, therefore, the plan must be again changed, but they resolved to execute their design against the others. The three colonels, Illo, Tursky, and William Kinsky, came in with careless confidence, and with them Captain Neumann, an officer of ability whose advice Tursky sought in every intricate affair. Previous to their arrival, trusted soldiers of the garrison to whom the plot had been communicated were admitted into the castle. All the avenues leading from it guarded, and six of the butler's dragons concealed in an apartment close to the banqueting rooms, who, on the concerted signal, were to rush in and kill the traitors. Without suspecting the danger that hung over them, the guests gaily abandoned themselves to the pleasure of the table, and Wallenstein's health was drunk in full bumpers, not as a servant of the emperor, but as a sovereign prince. The wine opened their hearts, and Illo, with the exultation, boasted that in three days an army would arrive, such as Wallenstein had never before been at the head of. Yes, cried Neumann, and then he hopes to bathe his hands in Austrian blood. During the conversation, the dessert was brought in, and Leslie gave the concerted signal to raise the drawbridge, while he himself received the keys of the gates. In an instant, the hall was filled with armed men, who, with the unexpected greeting of Long Live Ferdinand, placed themselves behind the chairs of the marked guest. Surprised and with the presentiment of their fate, they sprang from the table. Kinsky and Tursky were killed upon the spot, and before they could put themselves upon their guard. Neumann, during the confusion in the hall, escaped into the court, where, however, he was instantly recognized and cut down. Illo alone had the presence of mind to defend himself. He placed his back against the window, from hence he poured the bitterest reproaches upon Gordon and challenged him to fight him fairly and honorably. After a gallant resistance in which he slew two of his assailants, he fell to the ground overpowered by numbers and pierced with ten wounds. The deed was no sooner accomplished than Leslie hastened into the town to prevent the tumult. The sentinels at the castle gate seeing him running and out of breath and believing he belonged to the rebels fired their musket after him but without effect the firing however aroused the town guards 
and all Leslie's presence of mind was requisite to allay the tumult. He hastily detailed to them all the circumstances of Wallenstein's conspiracy, the measures which had been already taken to counteract it, the fate of whole rebels, as well as that which awaited their chief. Finding the troops well disposed, he exacted from them a new oath of fidelity to the emperor and to live and die for the good cause. A hundred of butler's dragons were sent from the castle into the town to patrol the streets, to overawe the partisans of the duke, and to prevent tumult. All the gates of Igra was at the same time seized, and every avenue to Wallenstein's residence, which adjoined the marketplace guarded by a numerous and trusty body of troops, sufficient to prevent either his escape or his receiving any assistance from without. But before they proceed finally to execute the deed, a long conference was held among the conspirators in the castle, whether they should kill him or content themselves with making him prisoner. Be sprinkled as they were with the blood, and deliberating almost over the very corpses of his murdered associates, even these furious men yet shuddered at the horror of taking away so illustrious a life. They saw before their mind's eye him, their leader in battle, in the days of his good fortune, surrounded by his victorious army, clothed with all the pomp of military greatness, and long accustomed awe, again seized their minds. But this transitory emotion was soon effaced by the thoughts of the immediate danger. They remembered the hints which Neumann and Illo had thrown at the table, the near approach of a formidable army of Swedes and Saxons, and they clearly saw that the death of the traitor was their only chance of safety. They adhered, therefore, to their first resolution, and Captain Devereux, an Irishman who had already been retained for a murderous purpose, received decisive orders to act. While these three officers were thus deciding upon his fate in the castle of Igra, Wallenstein was occupied in reading the stars with Seni. The danger is not over, said the astrologer with the prophetic spirit. It is, replied the duke, who would give the law even to heaven. But he continued with equally prophetic spirit, that though friend Seni thyself shall soon be thrown into prison. That is also written in the stars. The astrologer had taken his leave, and Wallenstein had retired to bed, when Captain Devereux appeared before his residence with six halberdiers, and was immediately admitted by the guard, who were accustomed to see him visit the general at all hours. A page who met him upon the stairs and attempted to raise an alarm was run through the body with a pike. In the antechamber, the assassins met a servant, who had just come out of the sleeping room of his master, and had taken with him the key. Putting his finger upon his mouth, the terrified domestic made a sign to them to make no noise as Duke was asleep. Friend, cried Devereux, it is time to awake him, and with these words he rushed against the door, which was also bolted from within, and burst it open. Wallenstein had been roused from his first sleep by the report of musket which had accidentally gone off and had sprung to the window to call the guard. 
At the same moment he heard from the adjoining building the shrieks of the Countess Terzky and Kinsky, who had just learned the violent fate of their husbands. Or he had time to reflect on these terrible events. Deborah, with the other murderers, was in his chamber. The Duke was in his shirts as he leaped out of bed, leaning on a table near the window. Art thou the villain, cried Deborah to him, who intends to deliver up the emperor's troop to the enemy, and to tear the crown from the head of his majesty? Now thou must die. He paused for a few moments, as if expecting an answer, but scorn and astonishment kept Wallenstein silent. Throwing his arms wide open, he received in his breast the deadly blow of Halberts, and without uttering a groan, fell weltering in his blood. The next day, an express arrived from Duke of Lauenburg, announcing his approach. The messenger was secured, and another in Wallenstein's livery dispatched to the Duke to decoy him into Igra. The stratagem succeeded, and Francis Albert fell into the hand of the enemy. Duke Bernard of Weimar, who was on his march toward Igra, was nearly sharing the same fate. Fortunately, he heard of Wallenstein's death in time to save himself by a retreat. Ferdinand shed a tear over the fate of his general, and ordered three thousand masses to be said for his soul at Vienna, but at the same time he did not forget to reward his accessions with gold chains, chamberlain's keys, and dignities and estates. Thus did Wallenstein, at the age of fifty, terminate his active and extraordinary life. To ambition he owed both his greatness and his ruin, with all his failings he possessed great and admirable qualities, and had he kept himself within due bounds, he would have lived and died without an equal. The virtues of the ruler and of the hero, prudence, justice, firmness, and courage are strikingly prominent features in his characters, but he wanted the gentle virtues of man, which adorn the hero and make the ruler beloved. Terror was the talisman with which he worked. Extreme in his punishment as his rewards, he knew how to keep alive the zeal of his followers, while no general of ancient or modern times could boast of being obeyed with equal alacrity. Submission to his will was more prized by him than bravery, for if the soldiers work by the latter, it is on the former that the general depends. He continually kept up the obedience of his troops by capricious orders, and profusely rewarded the readiness to obey even in trifles, because he looked rather to the act itself than its object. He once issued a decree with the penalty of death on disobedience that none but the red sashes should be worn in the army. A captain of horse no sooner heard the order than pulling off his gold-embroidered sash, he tramped it on the foot. Wallenstein, on being informed of this circumstance, promoted him on the spot to the rank of a colonel. His comprehensive glance was always directed to the hall, and in all his apparent caprice, he steadily kept in view some general scope or bearing. The robberies committed by soldiers in a friendly country had led to the severest order against marauders, and all who should be caught leaving were threatened with the halter. Wallenstein himself had met a straggler in the open country upon the field, commanded him to be seized without trial, 
as a transgressor of the law, and in his usual voice of thunder exclaimed, Hang the fellow, against which no opposition ever availed. The soldier pleaded and proved his innocence, but the irrevocable sentence had gone forth. Hang then innocent, cried the inexorable Wallenstein. The guilty will have then more reason to tremble. Preparations were already making to execute the sentence when the soldier who gave himself up for lost formed the desperate resolution of not dying without revenge. He fell furiously upon his judge, but was overpowered by numbers and disarmed before he could fulfill his design. Now let him go, said the duke. It will excite sufficient terror. His munificence was supported by an immense income, which was estimated at three millions of florins yearly, without reckoning the enormous sums which he raised under the name of contributions. His liberality and clearness of understanding raised him above the religious prejudice of his age, and the Jesuit never forgave him for having seen through their system and for rewarding the Pope as nothing more than a bishop of Rome. But as no one ever yet came to a fortunate end who quarreled with the Church, Wallenstein also must augment the number of his victims. Through the intrigues of monks, he lost at Latisbon the command of the army, at Egra his life. By the same arts, perhaps he lost what was of more consequence, his honorable name and good repute with posterity. For injustice, it must be admitted that the pens which have traced the history of this extraordinary man were not untinged with the partiality and the treachery of the duke and his designs upon the throne of Bohemia rest not so much upon proven facts as upon probable conjecture. No documents have yet been brought to light which disclose with historical certainty the secret motives of his conduct, and among all his public and well-attested actions there is perhaps not one which could not have had an innocent end. Many of his most obnoxious measures proved nothing but the honest wish he entertained for peace. Most of the others are explained and justified by the well-founded distrust he entertained of the emperor and the excusable wish of maintaining his own importance. It is true that his conduct toward the Elector of Bavaria looks too like an unworthy revenge and the dictate of an implacable spirit, but still none of his actions perhaps warrant us in holding his treason to be proved. If necessity and despair at last forced him to deserve the sentence which had been pronounced against him while innocent, still this, if true, will not justify that sentence. Thus, Wallenstein fell, not because he was a rebel, but he became a rebel because he fell. Unfortunate in life that he made the victorious party his enemy, and still more unfortunate in death that the same party survived him and wrote his history. End of Part 4 End of History of the Thirty Years' War Volume 4 by Friedrich Schiller Translated by Reverend Alexander James William Morrison, 1806-1865.